Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. morning. Is Alan in the room? No? Okay. All right. How's everybody? Are you as shocked as I am that the year 2017 is uh, almost finished? I remember back when we were still meeting at AFC, um, I saw a big poster hung on the wall And most of it was written in Korean, but I could recognize a couple words on the top of that poster. It said, Vision 2020. And they had a goal, 20 years from now, where do we want to be as a church? And I thought, man, what are they smoking? 20 years is like forever away. We're never going to see 2020. That's like two years away now. (laughs) It boggles my mind how fast time flies and how much faster it flies when you're getting a little more seasoned, if you know what I mean. I want to uh, just share that typically we use the last few Sundays of the year to direct our hearts in certain directions, okay? And usually the last Sunday of the year is Recommitment Sunday. It's a Sunday where we encourage every person at Harvest to take stock of their faith and really as they get ready to greet a new year, to prepare your heart for renewal, to recommit your heart in a fresh way to Jesus Christ, your Savior. And then the second to the last Sunday is usually our Christmas Sunday. And the third to the last Sunday, I've been using recently as a kind of State of the Union Sunday. You may recall last year when we were at Eisenhower, and I gave a very exhaustive very detailed play-by-play survey of the year. Some of you loved it. Some of you had to be awakened at the end of the service. This year, I'm not going to take that approach. This year, what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus on two main things, and I'm going to speak from the heart. And the first thing I'm going to focus on is a challenge about our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And the second thing I'm going to share is a challenge about us as a church family, okay? And Alan, would you mind just coming sort of towards the front, just getting ready? I've asked Alan to read something for us because I was going to try to channel my uh, southern accent, but uh, I'll tell you why, why do that when we got Alan. So, Alan, if you could just have a seat right there for a second, and I'll call you up in a minute. Um, I want to tell you, and by the way, the, uh, the title of the message is, Didn't We? And to really get the force of it, it should be pronounced, didn't we? It's a voice of, it's a question of confusion, of a little bit of um, disorientation, of protest, of wonderment. And you'll understand why in just a moment. I want to introduce you to the text and then to a man. The text comes from Matthew 7, 21 to 23. It is not the friendliest sounding words that Jesus ever spoke. In fact, they're kind of haunting. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons, and in your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Clarence Jordan. I got to believe, Alan, you know who this is. Um, Clarence Jordan was a farmer, businessman, and a New Testament Greek scholar, weird mix of things, who lived in the early 1900s, and he was ministering at a time when America was in turmoil. It was at the nascency of the civil rights movement, and he lived and ministered in rural Georgia, smack in the heart of the Bible Belt. He saw a lot around him that disturbed him, most prominently the absolute outright bigotry and racism that was so commonplace where he lived and when he lived. And I think the thing that disturbed him the most was that so many of the people who were the most egregious oppressors and bigots went to church every Sunday, wore their Sunday best, quoted the Bible, and truly believed all the while that they were among God's people, that they represented him, were on the right side with him, and that everything they did was justified because they did everything in his name. Now, Mr. Jordan was a New Testament Greek scholar, and so he thought, Why do we just translate the Bible in terms of theology and doctrine and language and not really translate it to our present context historically? And most of us, we trust preachers to do that, to say, what did did Jesus mean in first century um, ancient Near East Palestine, and what does it mean for us today? But Mr. Jordan rewrote a paraphrase of the Gospels and much of the New Testament set in the context of the South in the 1950s. In other words, he translated the Bible so that it was as though Jesus lived. And in fact, he said, here's how he did it. He said, Judea is Georgia. Jerusalem is Atlanta. Bethlehem is Gainesville, Georgia. I've been there. I knew someone who was from there. And Rome is Washington, D.C. And as he wrote this, what he wanted was for the force of the gospel to be spoken in a language and a setting that everybody around him would immediately identify with and say, oh, oh, when you say it like that, it changes everything. And I've toyed with the idea of doing a Clarence Jordan-like paraphrase for the northwest suburbs of Chicago, but I'm just not talented enough to do it. So I was going to read an excerpt from what he wrote was the Cotton Patch Gospel. That's what he called it. The Cotton Patch Gospel was a a paraphrase of the Gospel written in 1950s rural Georgia. I was going to channel my southern accent, but I, just this morning while I was at Starbucks preparing, I thought, man, we have Alan Eaton, a treasure right here. And I, I know you just walked in out of the parking lot. Someone handed you a paper, but you are a seasoned veteran pastor. I'm going to ask you, Alan, if you would come up. and Would you just read this excerpt? This is Clarence Jordan's rendition of Matthew 7, 21 to 23. I was a seminary classmate with his nephew, and I got to meet him. Not everyone who glibly calls me Lord, Lord, 
shall enter the kingdom of God. But he who does the will of my spiritual father, the time will come when many people will gather around and say, Lord, Lord, we sure did preach in your name, didn't we? And in your name, we gave the devil a room for his money, didn't we? Then, oh, we did all kinds of stunts in your name, didn't we? Then I'll admit right in front of everybody. I've never known you. Get away from me, you wicked religious racketeers. Thank you. The reason I wanted for you to hear this rendition was because it captures so powerfully the emotional force of what Jesus was trying to express to the religious leaders of his day. Because they also quoted scripture, went to church, uttered the name of God, but their hearts couldn't have been further from God. Some of the worst things happening in his day were happening because of the influence and the direct hand of religious leaders. And I think Mr. Jordan looked around him and said, how is it possible that all of us go to church and all of us read the same Bible and have completely missed the fact that God loves and values every person the same? How is it possible you can go to church every single week and so utterly miss the heart of God? You can quote scripture without bending your knees to the King of Kings. How is that possible? See, Jesus had just gotten done preaching one of the greatest sermons ever. Now he's landing the plane. He had described in beautiful pictures and words what his kingdom would look like, what humanity, what society, what our world would look like if Jesus truly reigned as king, if people would align their hearts and their lives according to his vision of how life on earth should go. And as he did that, everybody was caught up in it. They were compelled by this picture. Everyone said, I want that. It's the way I feel every time I sit down at a timeshare presentation. Ooh. Oh, I want that. Mm. Look at these rooms. Look at all our choices. Look at all the cities where they have properties. I want some of that. And then what do they do? Oh, you can have that. It'll just cost you $850 a month. I said, ooh, I wanted that. I really wanted that. But I don't know if I can afford that. See, what Jesus says is this picture of the kingdom is beautiful to everybody. It's compelling. We all want to live in that world, in that society. We wish life worked this way. But the road that leads to that life, that kingdom is a really narrow road. That was what we talked about a couple weeks ago. 
that one of these roads standing before you leads to life, it leads to the kingdom of God, it leads to the beautiful picture he's just painted, and the other road leads somewhere else. It leads to a different place, to death, to destruction, to lostness, to darkness, to all the things we see that depress us about the world we live in. And Jesus, as he's winding down the sermon, like a good preacher, says, I don't just want you to be inspired. I want you to make a choice. And it's a choice that every human being has to make for themselves. Your mother can't make it for you. Your father can't make it for you. Growing up in the church can't do it for you. This is a fork in the road that faces every man, woman, and child who was ever born. And we are being invited, just like his hearers, to make that decision today. You have to pick one of these roads. And when you pick that road, it will absolutely determine where your journey of life ends up. It will also determine where you spend eternity. And that's a choice that is free for us to make, but we don't have the option of not making it. To not make the choice is to have made a choice already. And what he said was one of those roads is wide. It's a a paved six-lane highway, and you'll have plenty of company. No one will hassle you about rules or speed limits. You get to travel that road on your own terms, by your own rules. You just go. And it will be a nice ride. It will be so comfortable. But the place it's taking you is a place you don't want to go. And he said in open and full disclosure, the road that leads to life and to my kingdom is not as easy to find. You won't have as much company It won't be an easy road, but that journey is worth taking. It is the best choice you can make when you come to this fork in the road. Jesus then said, there will come after me a lot of false teachers. Remember that picture of the wolf dressed up as a sheep? And a lot of these false teachers will come and they will try to tell you, they'll try to sell you a bill of goods. And what they'll try to tell you is there is a way to that same kingdom that doesn't require a hard journey on a narrow road. They'll try to tell you it's possible to have every advantage and benefit of the gospel without any of the cost and commitment of the gospel. That you can have Jesus as Savior and never really look at Jesus as Lord. This is an easy way to an awesome conclusion. They will try to tell you that and convince you it's true. And everything in your heart will want that to be true. Because who wouldn't want an easy journey to an awesome place? But Jesus said, and for whatever reason in his wisdom, this is the way things are. That in this hard and sin-scarred fallen world, the journey that leads to life is not easy. It would be weird if the journey that led to God's kingdom were easy in this messed up world. And so he says, choose the narrow road. A lot of people will try to make it easier for you, but they are not doing you any favors. This is not an easy road, but it is a road worth traveling. And then he turns his attention from those who would deceive to those who are deceived. And here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, or if you're from Gainesville, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says that is really mine. You see, this narrow road, this journey that leads to life, it involves more than just saying you're on that journey. It involves more than saying the right words or calling God by the right name. 
Because many people whose hearts have been very far from God have called him Lord, have done things in his name. And what he says is, my kingdom is about more than words and claims. There is something involving our hands and feet, our whole hearts, the totality of our being. You know, we have this phrase, nominal Christianity, but I think that is a a false term. I don't think anything in Scripture describes something called nominal Christianity. There is no such thing as a Christianity that is actually Christianity, but not that intense. None of the invitations, none of the descriptions of the kingdom of God ever suggest there's this sort of, eh, you know, it's kind of kingdomish. Just kind of, sort of come. You know how we talk today? Kind of, sort of, you know, sort of come and it'll be kind of awesome. You'll sort of walk and do some things and then you'll have everything. I'm not trying to suggest you've got to claw your way, pay a high price. What I'm saying is if you thought that you could lay hold of the kingdom of God the creator, the savior, and reserve most of you for yourself. You didn't realize what an exchange was being presented to you. He didn't say, I want to give you your life and my life. He said, I want to take your life and I want to give you my life. It's an exchange. To get hold of what he's offering, you've got to release what you were holding. That's the only way it works. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. Nominal Christianity is the exact same thing as imagined Christianity. It is not a thing that Jesus or Scripture ever recognizes. It is something the American church has celebrated, but it is not a real thing in the kingdom of God. And I I just issue that with a heavy heart, not to rebuke or judge anybody. I'm saying that if you believe such a thing is possible to cry out in God's name, to do things in his name, and yet all the while to reserve your heart and not kneel before him as Lord. If you thought that was a workable situation, then the terror, the heaviness of my heart is you might find yourself among the number of those who stood before, who stand before him one day and say, I don't understand. Didn't I call you Lord, Lord? And I think Jesus will say to us, you sure did. You said it a lot. But I don't just have ears, I have eyes. I've seen your heart. And even as you uttered the words, I never saw that your heart was mine. You said a lot, but you kept so much of yourself for yourself. What haunts me are these opening words of verse 22 that many will say to me, many, many, Many people will say to Jesus on that day. You know what that phrase is telling us? On that day. That's the final judgment. That means that these people, many, will have gone their whole lives truly believing they were right with God, only to discover they were deeply deceived. They were deceived by false teachers and they deceived themselves. They wanted to have that cake and they wanted to still keep having that cake too. They wanted to eat it and have it at the same time. You can't do that. They will say to him, we don't understand. We did stuff, not just little stuff. 
We did stuff that was impressive, stuff that you shouldn't be able to do unless you're one of the good guys. Listen to what they did. As evidence that they were right with God, they present a, a resume of pretty phenomenal feats. If any of you could stand up here and join them in saying these things, I'd be like, dude, you gotta, you gotta come on step. We need to hire you right now. Look what they did. They, they prophesied. They performed exorcisms. How many of you have cast out a demon in the last year? I, I might have cast out a few from myself. I don't know. But I, I, I can't remember the last time I performed an exorcism. And listen to this. Not just a couple. They didn't just do one miracle. You know that one thing. They did many miracles. And they said these are supernatural feats. These are demonstrations clearly of religious and spiritual power. And we did them all in your name. And Jesus says, I was watching. That was impressive. But if you thought that you would stand before me and present to me the long litany of things you've done, the successes you've enjoyed under the umbrella of my name, you didn't understand what I was calling you to. See, I'm not just trying to build a brand or an enterprise I am gathering people to myself. That's what Jesus' kingdom is. It's not a cause and a movement and an organization. It is those things, but it's not just those things. At the heart of this kingdom are people far from God walking in darkness who he calls to himself and says, come home to me. I'm inviting you to lay hold of life that is really life, and I'm asking you to let go of the life that is no life at all, to trade in old rags for new, to give up what was not worth having, the darkness and the lostness and the weakness of everything before, and lay hold of a life that is truly life. That's the invitation. That's what he's inviting us to. Savior and Lord are irreversibly bound together in Jesus Christ. Because he is our Savior... He has a right to be followed and submitted to and worshipped as king. And we acknowledge him as king because we understand what a gift and a wonder it is that we should be saved. And as they present this long list of successes and things they've done that should speak on their own merits, look what we did in your name. And he said, yeah, I see that. I appreciate all of it, but I never knew you. We had no relationship. You built the west wing of our church building. You delivered 2,050 sermons. And all that time, I never had a relationship with you. You hung out a lot in my house. But as I searched and searched with longing, I never saw that your heart was bent before me as king. And the reason that a person would not bend their hearts before Jesus as king is because they don't fully understand he is the one who saved me and and basically gave me everything in exchange for nothing. I don't know about you, but if someone donated their kidney to me and I was alive because of that, I don't care what favor they ask, they're getting it. See, gratitude, acknowledgement of a gift received elicits very naturally a sense of beholdenness, of indebtedness. 
It says to me, I know what you have done for me. This is not a burden for me to serve you. It is a joy and a privilege. It is an expression of deepest thanks, an acknowledgement of what I got from you, that for the rest of my life, I'm your man. Jesus is king because he's savior. But if he is savior, he also has to be king. This is the kingdom of God. It's why we call it a kingdom in the first place. Now, before you get the impression that all I'm saying is do whatever he says, be a slave, that's not the spirit of it at all. Our recognition of Jesus as king begins with our recognition of Jesus as our savior. Let me finish this part of, of my message in this way. There was an occasion when Jesus sent out 72 of his followers on a short-term mission trip. I love that short-term missions was a thing even in Jesus' day. He said, you guys, you 72, I've poured into you. I've commissioned you. I've given you authority and spiritual power. I've given you the promise of protection. Now go out and try to spread this gospel. Tell people about the new king that has come. Tell people about the new kingdom. Call them to repent. And they did it. And as they did, they followed his example. When they saw sick people... They laid hands on them. They healed them. When they saw crazy people who were demon-possessed, they cast those demons out. And you know how it is when people come back from short-term missions and God has been at work and they're just so excited. They just, you know, try picking up your kids after Tuba City. It's just rattling on all the cool things that God did. And I love that moment of hearing it. When you get to experience God at work, it's hard to bottle it up. It just starts gushing out. And so they come back and they say to them, the 72 returned with joy and said, Lord, it was so cool. Even the demons submit to us in your name. I don't know about you, but if I said to some crazy person, demon, get out. And the person was like, thanks, man. Wow, that was just a weird couple of years. And if they walked away, I'd be like, what just happened? I've been a part of a number of supernatural healings, miraculous healings I have no scientific explanation for. I've laid hands on people and watched them in front of my very eyes be healed in visible ways. And every time it's happened, the skin on the back, just the hair just rises, and I feel like I'm in the presence of something I can't explain. It is one of the most awe-inspiring experiences. I pray with zeal that every last one of us will experience that one day. I cannot stop believing God because I've seen him in that powerful way with my own eyes. And each time I do it, there's a sense of otherworldliness, an out-of-body experience. Did that just happen? Did I put this ridiculous, fleshly, meaty hand, just put it on someone, and something supernatural just happened? And I want to tell everybody, because I can't believe this works, that this is real. It makes me realize how true the kingdom really is. And these guys come back excited, like, you would not believe the stuff we did in your name. Your name is powerful. It's unbelievable. And I love Jesus' response. That's great, guys. It's so cute to see these guys get excited about stuff he just does before breakfast. You know, demon out, demon out, healing. But they're trying, and they're like, it's amazing. Your name, your kingdom is something impressive. And he says to them with such love in his heart, yeah, that's wonderful, but listen. Don't get too worked up over that stuff. Those demonstrations of power are cool. But you want to know what you should really rejoice over? Not that the 
Not that the demons or spirits submit to you, but that when you look in your own heart and you look up at heaven, you can rest secure that your name is known to God. And my Father has written your name in his book. You once were so far from us, and we found you in your darkness, and we brought you into light. There was a time when you were so lost, and I found you. I saved you when you couldn't save yourself. And now forever, in a way that this gift can never be taken away, your name is known to my Father. This is the ultimate nightclub test. Wait behind the velvet ropes, and you get to the bouncer, and your name is on that list. Think what it will feel like on that day to realize that he knows your name. And because of that amazing truth, he says, do you realize who I am when I say, the best gift I can offer you is that I should be your king, that I should direct your life to places you would not know to go, that by my authority, I would call you out of choices and behaviors that will rob you of your life and joy, that will call you into new ways of living, that will help you experience this kingdom I've just described. So Harvest, as 2018 approaches, we get ready to close out this year. Here's my invitation to each of you. It's an, it's an invitation I feel God has also laid on my own heart. Spend time dwelling on this, that when you had no way of finding your way to God, he introduced himself to you. Maybe it was when you were a young man or woman, Freshly minted, just entering adulthood. You didn't really know which way was up or down. And in the midst of that confusing period, God broke through the fog of your life and he made himself known to you. When everyone else around you was only thinking about having fun, somewhere along the way, God broke into your consciousness and said, do you know me? I'm here standing in front of you. And dwell on that for a minute because that is something we could not demand of God. It is one of the greatest gifts that exists. Is that people wandering about in the dark should see a great light and find their way to hope. That's our story. If you follow Jesus, that's your story. That's my story. I know maybe lately the only story you're rehearsing in your pain is the story of your present darkness. But there is no hope out of that darkness apart from this light which Jesus brought into each of our lives at some point. And that's the place where we begin any process of renewal, is to remember that Jesus Christ saved us. And to be able to say those words should cause wonder each time. I don't understand how we can say such a thing. He saved us. And because he saved us and we understand this, I have no confusion about who he is to me now. You who laid down everything to give me life, I lay down everything for you.
I really pray that this coming year will be a year where you, you and I experience a deep renewal of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm not talking about a sort of incremental, subtle uplift. Of the, I mean something radical, something profound. Like a second conversion. Like a time when you stood before God for the first time and realized what he was offering you. When everything old was gone and everything new was rushing in and you felt so keenly how privileged you were and what a gift you were receiving. I can't inspire you to that place with words. I want to try, but it won't work. I think we get to that place in the quiet of our hearts, in a closet, in an attic room, in the stillness of your car on your lunch hour, as you sit still and quiet and say, God, remind me who you are and what you've done. I confess that I'm forgetting that, and I need so desperately to remember. Remind me who you once were to me and who you still are today. And then lead my heart to hold nothing back from you. To surrender everything in lordship all over again. And to say to you, everything is yours. I leave nothing left in my own hand. Can I invite us to just bow for a moment and pray before I move into the second part of my talk? One of the frustrating parts of being a preacher is that sometimes the Holy Spirit moves my heart in ways that words feel so insufficient to express. And I struggle through words trying to convey something, and I can't do it. So I'm trusting now that the same Holy Spirit who has been pounding away at me will pound away at you. There is no such thing as nominal Christianity. There is no such thing as sort of following Jesus. There is just following him with everything or not following him at all. That is the invitation into this kingdom. And it's one that he is enabling you to make and inviting you to make right now. Maybe something is holding you back. Maybe you are afraid you will lose something you can't reclaim if you take that step. But whatever you leave behind, you can afford to leave behind. So I want to just be quiet for a minute and invite you to sit with God. No matter what age you are, where you are in your life, this fork in the road faces every one of us. It's someplace we must go by ourselves. So let's sit before him for a minute. Join me. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to just start by confessing together that lukewarm, nominal Christianity is really pretty much of a drag. It's not life-giving. It's not inspiring. We find so little hope and peace and power in such a faith. It feels like all obligation and no reward. So we pray that you would usher us into a new way. Holy Spirit, I pray for our whole congregation right now in this moment that you would pull strongly on our hearts. 
to push aside following you at a safe distance, sort of knowing you. Invite us now to choose that narrow road and to embrace fully you and your kingdom. Holy Spirit, I trust that you are already doing more than any words could accomplish. And I pray that you will continue relentlessly to pursue our hearts. We want 2018 to be a year when our congregation experiences real renewal together. We pray that you would make us zealous for that, hungry for that, impatient and intolerant of a kind of Christianity that has no life to it at all. And we pray that you would do this and you would be glorified and we would be amazed at how different life feels when we give everything over to you and walk with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a lot of people praying that this will keep happening in your life that God won't let go of you. So I want to ask you not to let go of it yourself. Wrestle with it a little bit. And I want to give you a a second word of challenge and and, um, maybe update as well. And I want to say a word about our quest for a, a church building. This is a topic that you kind of have been hearing some things about. It's just constantly in flux, and I want to just give you a definitive word about where we are so that as a whole church family, we all get on the same page this morning. Deal? All right. So as you know, for about three years, we have been actively looking for a church building. And we have visited lots of different places. We have had many conversations because we sense that after 22 years of living in other homes, God is calling us into a time of acquiring a home of our own. All right? Are you feeling that? I think a lot of people are, are agreed upon this, that this feels like what God is leading us to right now. And so we've been looking, but we've been looking the way we do most things. We try not to freak out and make something happen. We're waiting to see what God does. So whenever something has popped up, we have really gone after it and and investigated it, prayed about it. And we've had a lot of near misses and stops and starts. And we still have a few things on the boiler that are taking a really long time to heat up. Like the tech center at the campus where our ministry center is, they've been promising us an answer like for, it seems like a 100 years. It feels like we're going to have to wait another 100 years, but we still are watchful on that. But I want to tell you where we are in that. And I want to start by just addressing this question, because people have asked this from time to time. Why are we looking for a building at all? Why, why is this necessary? And I want to give you two reasons or two answers why we are looking for a building. Okay? And the first answer to that question is because we want our, our church to be a blessing to others. Now, we're going to acknowledge right off the bat Hoffman Estates and Schaumburg, maybe even the northwest suburbs, is not everyone's community here. Some of you driving from the city or from McHenry County, DuPage County, from all over Chicagoland, even Lake County. I think we have four or five counties represented in our church. That's weird. 
That's not a normal community church. We've even joked about changing our name to Harvest Commuter Church. Because Harvest Community Church feels a little like deception. But here's the deal. Even though we all come from different neighborhoods, when we gather as a church family, this area becomes our collective neighborhood. It's the, the arena in which we learn how to minister to a community together. This is our neighborhood as a church family. And as such, we have a yearning to do more to be a blessing to the people around here. One of the great experiences we had this past year that I will relish for a long time is what we experienced at Harvest Fest. How many of you really loved what we experienced and what we saw? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) I'll tell you, when I was walking around, I was in a good mood for three solid hours that day. I, I watched so many people very visibly and behind the scenes, just pour out everything in a desire to bless a neighborhood. I saw kids we never met before having a great time. We saw families coming back because they were drawn to the love and welcome they experienced in this place. And what I loved is that this felt like something we all joined hands and did together. And I was amazed at the outpouring of servanthood and sacrifice. And it made me realize that if we could do that together in the limitations of this rented space, coming in at 8 o'clock on that very morning and still somehow pulling that off, it began to whet our, our, our appetites and our vision for what would be possible if we had a space of our own. I mean, just think about how much more we could accomplish if we could start decorating and setting up and doing things weeks in advance on site rather than dragging everything out of the back of a truck and scrambling to set it up that morning. In a couple Sundays from now, we're going to have a lunch to appreciate all of our leaders. And when we're gathered, we're going to cast vision for the next year with our leaders. And we're going to talk about some changes that are coming up. And one of the things we're going to ask our leaders to do that day is to go back to their teams or their area of ministry and challenge their teams to dream big. To ask them this question, guys, Listen, team, if we had our own building, what sort of things could we dream about doing, could we endeavor to do in that situation that we can't as easily do right now? If we had our own building, what would that unleash in our team, in our area of ministry? I'm really excited to hear back from everyone, from community group leaders to ministry team leaders. I'm so looking forward to hearing some of the ways that God's spirit sparks our imagination. And as those answers come back in, we're going to share those with you so you begin to catch a sense of how a building really can make a huge difference in the ability of a church family to reach their surrounding community. We also know that having a permanent place, rather than having to go on the website and say, you know, like we've often said this, we're the Where's Waldo Church. You can join us if you find us. And most of the time we're here. But sad for you if you forgot to check the website and we're at Eisenhower and you come here. To have a permanent place in a community makes a tangible difference for the people in that community. It makes a huge difference to know that around the clock you can come to that place and find our people. So that's one reason. But here's another reason that I think often gets overlooked. It is a blessing for us. I've heard numerous times now that outreach is the only legitimate justification for spending money on a building. And I've heard the people say that with great conviction, and I'd love, I appreciate the heart from which that kind of statement comes. I get you. I hear you. We all do. 
that if we're just this sort of greedy, self-centered, ingrown bunch of like, let's spend a bunch of money to get an awesome house just for us, and then let's bar the gates from the world around us, that would be the wrong spirit, wouldn't it? Right? It would. That's not us. That's not our spirit at all. We want so badly to be a blessing to the community, but when we say that the only valid reason to get a building is to reach others, we forget something really important. That the church in Scripture is called the Bride of Christ. The way a good and loving husband thinks about and approaches his own wife is the way Jesus feels about us as a church family. Now, I appreciate that Jeannie, my wife, is a, is, she's got a gift of hospitality. She is a great cook. She, she allows me to freely, without permission, just go, hey, I invited like 20 people over. They're coming. Could you make something? And we bought a bigger house so that we'd have space and a good kitchen and all that. But what if I said to her, you know, the only reason we bought this house is because I wanted to give you a place to cook and to entertain our guests. That's what you're good for. That's what I, that's what I like about you is that when I invite people over, you help me make food for them. High five. Think about how that would feel because I've said something true, but I've left something out that's really important is that you're my bride. There's an affection and a tenderness I feel about you so that I didn't just buy this house to give you a place to work and serve others. I bought this house to give you a deep sense of home and belonging, a place that we say we live together. I say I bought. I didn't buy it by myself. We did it together. You, You hear what I'm saying is when Jesus hears us talking about a building, his goal is not just to give us a place to reach others. It's also to love his bride, to be a blessing to his family. That still matters, and we should not take that away from him. We don't want to become selfish and ingrown and for sure challenge us and voice that so it never happens. But let's stop saying that we don't matter, that the only thing that matters in a building is reaching others. Us having a home matters to him because he adores his bride. He loves us. He wants to give us a place where our hearts belong, a place we can say, that's our place. He gave that to us. It's where we live. And I want to really emphasize that. Let's have both. Let's not pit one against the other and say it has to be either this or that. Both are the reasons why Jesus is leading us in this direction. Let me also just say one practical word. Ever since the last election cycle, um, the world at large doesn't have a high opinion of the evangelical church in the United States. Would you agree with that? (laughs) Yeah. The evangelical church has lost a little credibility, and many of the people who are in charge of things like rental permits they rank among the numbers of those who aren't very fond of what we collectively are ascribed as doing. What we've seen in other cities is there is a growing trend of closed-offness, a growing distance between rental facilities that are public and the church that is private. We still enjoy a wonderful relationship with the folks in District 211 with Hoffman Estates High School, and we've enjoyed a long history of being invited here, of welcomed here. But we, if we rest on that and bank on that forever, it will be a mistake. I have colleagues in New York City who are leading thriving, flourishing churches, and overnight, the powers that be simply made an overnight decision that the schools are no longer welcome in the public school, and the churches are no longer welcome in the public schools. And overnight, hundreds of churches 
were asked to leave the schools that they called their church home. And overnight, all the greedy buzzards swept in who owned meeting venues, and they gouged every church in the area. My friend's church now pays $20,000 a week to meet in a small theater. It should cost 4000 a week, but when you can get 20, why would you charge four? And they had no choice to survive as a church. They needed a place to gather, and they had very few options because they did not see this coming. I'm not suggesting that anybody in the school district has expressed hostility towards us or has foreshadowed anything, but we also need to be aware that every week we meet together by the permission of others. Praise God, it's come. But I want to call us to a church family to think a little bit about what lies ahead. Now, there are two main components to the pursuit of a church building. There is what we call a capital campaign, which is the fundraising part. You know, this is just one-on-one. If you're trying to buy a house for your family, there's the do we have any money part of it, and then which house do we want? You, and which order you do that is arguable, right? Because we've heard, you know, which do you do first? Do you go house hunting and find something that so inspires you? You're like, let's scrimp and save to get that house. Or do you first save up tons of money and then look for a house? Which, which comes first? Classic chicken or the egg? We've been told for a long time by people who know what they're doing that it's very challenging to raise money unless you have a specific building in mind because people respond to concrete vision. In fact, some of the most successful fundraising drives happen when a church is trying to build a new building and they get the architect scale model under a glass container in the lobby of their old building and every time you walk in, you're like, dang, let's make that happen. Have you ever walked past a model like that? It, it inspires you. It gets your juices flowing. You're like, really? That's why, you know, you, when you're house hunting and you walk through, you're like, wow. And the, a good real estate agent doesn't say, this is a living room. They say, this could be your living room. Oh, that could be your study. Because I know you like that sort of thing. And that's what we're trying to talk about is, should we have a concrete vision? So we're not just saying, let's raise money for a building before that building. And that's the approach we took. We looked hard for buildings, and we walked through dozens. We, we visited a lot of places. And now, as a result, we have a really good picture of the market. We know what's out there, what's not out there. We know how much it costs. And we understand that when we look at the kind of building that's suitable for us, we don't have the resources right now to acquire it without stretching us at irresponsible ways. We could do it. If we blurred our eyes and we pretended you're just wallets on legs, we could. If I used every last bit of my, my relational collateral, my influence to tell you, give, 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 give. If I did that for the next two years, I think we could pull it off. But that's just not the way we've done things. So we've come to a sober realization, and it's something that I must apologize to some of you. You have said this for a while now, and we are listening. We've made the decision to prioritize the fundraising first. To stop teasing ourselves by looking at buildings until we're in a position to move quickly when a good opportunity arises. We have found buildings that are really suitable. In fact, the last one we saw was awesome. It's the best building we've looked at so far. It's almost like a unicorn that was dropped on, on butterfly parachutes out of heaven. I mean, it's just an amazing building. Location, the size, the price... The curb appeal, the build-out, all of it was almost ready for move-in. 
I want to show you that building just as an example because we saw it. And this, is the, this is the frontage of the building. It's located in Schaumburg, just south of the I-90 exit on Roselle. It's a pretty nice location. For some of you, that, that's an awesome location. It's about 36,500 square feet. All the offices have glass walls, so there's great accountability. You know, there's the ability to see in to see what the Sunday school classroom is looking like. Um, it's, it's really well built out. The craftsmanship, the level of adherence to code is awesome. There's a big meeting room, a break room that has lots of tables and a really well-pointed kitchen. There are large meeting rooms like this that Peter is looking at. And they have probably a million file cabinets, which we wouldn't know. We'd have to get rid of them. But there's this really cool greeter's desk that I looked at and said, man, welcome. That's an actual welcome center. Not a table with a red tablecloth. An actual welcome center. Wow. I can picture newcomers being greeted there. So we saw all this, 135 parking spaces. But we realized if we want to do something like this, we don't have the resources on hand to do it responsibly. We've always been above reproach in our handling of money, and we didn't feel like this is the right time to sort of turn around and do it differently. If some of you band together and have a million bucks burning a hole in your pocket, we can move right now, okay? But I just don't know if that exists. If it does, I want you to see me after church and go, listen, listen, I got a million bucks. This is why I also want to say a quick word to some of you newly minted Bitcoin millionaires. Growing rich on that fake money, what do you think that's for? What do you think that's for? I know some of you, you're Bitcoin ballers. I wonder if the Holy Spirit will start to agitate your heart about that. Because you did nothing for it but take a good guess. (laughs) And it's working out nicely for now. Anyway. That's enough said on that. I will give you some more details about our push to prioritize the fundraising part. I'm going to give you some hard numbers, and then I'll draw this to a close, okay? We've concluded after running some financial models with our finance team that we need to raise $1.5 million in cash. That equates to twice our annual giving in cash on hand in addition to the regular ongoing giving that we operate on. That's a lot of money. It's not an impossible amount, but it's nothing to sneeze at. And that represents the high side of what we need to raise. Okay? We also need to see an increase in our ongoing sustainable forever weekly giving at around 15% across the board. Because when you buy a building, you also buy seal coating the, the blacktop, snow removal, custodial services, HVAC unit replacement, insurance, blah, blah, blah. You, you buy all of that. The cost of ownership is never just a mortgage payment, is it? How many times have you grumbled, dang, why did we ever buy a house? So 15% is a, is a minimal figure for where we need to see our regular giving increase. We have, we have opened a building fund now. We have a separate account. And some of you in faith and prophetic vision have been giving designated gifts to our building fund for a while now. So we opened an account, and rest assured, if you ever wrote building fund on your check, that's where it went. We've transferred all that money to a building fund, and we've now accrued about 300000 in savings that we don't count on for operating expenses. And so we've seeded that fund with 300000 already. That means we're one-fifth of the way to our goal at the start, which is pretty encouraging. Would you agree? 
So together we're making a big push for the remainder of that, about $1.2 million. And that's something we want to move towards together. And we're going to prioritize that over the next two years. We're still figuring out if we need to pay a consulting firm to help us figure out how to do this well. But we are pushing hard for these goals. And I want to draw it too close by just saying, what does this mean for each of us? Because we're having some hard conversations at home as well about what that means. What are the implications for our, my family if we're going to do this? Because that means, effectively, I have to double what we're giving now. And that freaks me out a little bit because it isn't easy to give what we're giving now. And what it does mean for all of us is if we decide to do this together as a family, we're all going to have to seriously think about adjustments to our finances and our standards of living in order to make this push together. And that's nothing new. Every family goes through that process when they're ready to tackle a really big thing. Most of us started at this church when we were still fairly new in our careers. Our incomes were significantly less. And over the years, our incomes have grown. In some cases, doubled, tripled, quadrupled. But our giving is held steady. And partly because the church was so stable, there never felt like there was an urgency to give more. But for the first time in 22 years of our church's history, we're tackling a whopper. We've never attempted anything this big, and I don't think we're going to be able to achieve this together without some significant changes to the way we live at home. It's going to require serious adjustment and sacrifice. We're ready to do it in our house, and I'm asking you to really have some hard conversations at your house about what that will mean for you to stand with us, and let's do this together as a church family. I also want to acknowledge those who have given faithfully over the years. We wouldn't even dream of a building project if we didn't have that long, rich history of many of you standing with us faithfully. So thank you for that. I want you to know that over 22 years, our past giving has always been sufficient to meet our past needs. We're now entering a new season and a new challenge. We're going to have to push and stretch a little bit harder for us to get this done. I'm running out of time here, so I need to bring this to a close. We don't want to do this in a way that just raises money. I believe what God wants to do is grow our church spiritually even as we succeed in this endeavor. And please trust the leaders here that we will carry out this endeavor in a way that honors that desire. We will not look at you as wallets on legs, as I said. We are God's people, and we have to grow through this or we won't do it at all. So just join with me right now. Let's just dedicate this undertaking to the Lord and ask him to bring progress and clarity and to really release everything that's needed to get this done. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you love our church, that we are your bride, and you treasure us. We thank you that everything we need, you provide. And even in this, as you call us to stretch and to sacrifice, you will enable us to do that with joy. We trust you for that. We would not have it any other way. And so we ask you now to open the door for this undertaking. Make this a reality for your sake so we could be a blessing to our community and that this home would be a great blessing to our family. Be glorified and do this for us and with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.